0: Welcome to What Do You Like? with Maria and Hunter.
1: Hello! Hi, I'm Hunter.
0: And uh, this show, for those who are just joining us, is about what people like. Sometimes we've had people in the past come and discuss it, but right now we've been kind of going through just what we like. And in case you couldn't catch on, we're also nerds! So this topic for this week is Neil Gaiman's work and specifically focusing on The Sandman because it was made into a TV show on Netflix.
1: Yes. So first off, go watch The Sandman on Netflix because we will be spoiling basically everything about it.
0: Or if you happen to have the books and haven't read them for a while, highly recommend you read them.
1: What I'm getting at is spoilers for everything that we discuss. Uh, Look in the description, we'll put a list of works that we talk about, but spoilers are on from here on out.
0: I guess we should start with who is Neil Gaiman. He is an author. He was born on the 10th of November, 1960, and he is known for being a fantasy, dark fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and comedy and mythology author.
1: The way I would describe him at is sort of modern weird. He does a lot of things that are either references to mythology, but updated to the modern day, or are modern day tales with mythology. He does a lot of modern weird, for lack of a better descriptor, because he is kind of without genre. He kind of does his own thing, and people go, yes, that's great. More of that, please.
0: He also might have been your first introduction into being scared, because he is an author who thinks that children can deal with and probably enjoy being scared. And I have to agree with him, because he wrote the book Coraline for his daughter Holly when she was a kid, and it is a quite chilling book. It is a lot of fun, and it's obviously geared towards children, because the main character, Coraline. Is probably about middle school age, which is when I was introduced to it, but it is a fantastic story, and it is about a little girl that finds a secret alternative world. It seems like everything is better there, except everyone has buttons for eyes.
1: Yeah, this was also adapted into a movie, which if I remember correctly is stop motion. It is for the stop
0: motion anim- yeah. animation, yeah.
1: So that's one adaptation.
0: Yep, buckle in, there's gonna be more.
1: Oh, well, it happens a lot.
0: You pr- might even have seen some of his stuff and didn't realize that it is a Neil Gaiman work. To name a few, besides The Sandman, is Neverwhere, American Gods, which is also a TV show, A Nazi's Boys, which was a not exactly a sequel, but sort of an offshoot, let's say, of American Gods, Stardust, that's now a movie, Some people who are friends of Henry Cavill will know that was probably one of his first memorable roles.
1: Yes. Henry Cavill shows up weirdly in a lot of places.
0: I mean, he's a good actor. Anyway. We've already said Coraline. And then uh, Good Omens with Terry Pratchett, which is a fantastic piece of literature, and that's also on Amazon now. It stars David Tennant and Michael Sheen as the demon and angel who try to stop the world from ending and don't do a great job at it.
1: They succeed. Kind of. No, they succeed. They stop the world from ending. (laughs) That is their entire goal. Arguably, they have other things in their job description, But we'll talk about that more later.
0: Anyway, that's for another time. And then The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which you've read and I have read. I did.
1: I think I read it at the wrong time and I need to read it again. Mm -hmm. It's quite nice. I think it plays well as a story, but I read it long enough ago that I don't remember the specifics of it. I would recommend it. I just need to read it again, I think, to get a better feel for it and to refresh my memory.
0: I have read all of these books that we've listed, except for The Ocean at the End of the Lane, and I cannot recommend any of them. I can't re- recommend them enough for anyone who is interested in fantasy, science fiction, and dry humor almost every step of the way. A little bit of history into how he kind of got started. I didn't know this, but his first book was that he wrote was a biography of Duran Duran.
1: The New Wave Band, not anything else. I don't know what else you'd get Duran Duran confused with.
0: He also has collaborated with DC prior to the Sandman because the Sandman is a DC property. He has also written, and he's also written for Marvel. Also, also has written written a companion piece to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He did the English language script for Princess Mononoke. And he also wrote an episode of Doctor Who for the Matt Smith saga.
1: He is a prolific writer. He's done a lot of stuff. He's also jumped between a bunch of different mediums, which is challenging because writing for film and writing for TV and writing books and writing short stories are four different skills. There are authors who do not have all four of those skills.
0: I have yet to um, absorb any of his works in any form and come back from it going, eh, maybe starts the movie Stardust. It wasn't, I don't think, the best adaptation of his work, but it was still a good movie. It's just, when you're trying to make a story where all the cliches are there, but everyone kind of points and laughs at them, it doesn't always work. It is better in book form.
1: It's a hard road to walk down, to have that. You're aware of what it is, but you're still treating it seriously, but still aware of it. That doesn't always play super well, tonally. Hmm. Shall we get started on Sandman?
0: Yeah, so now we'll go to the topic of hand, which is Sandman. This is a comic series that he wrote with the help of, you know, many illustrators and editors that are credited in the books if you read them and look in the back. It was a chi- it was the child or the production of many people, and it looks like everyone put a lot of work into it. And the result is pretty... Great. Won't lie. I yeah. really like it.
1: Written uh, in the early 90s until 1996, I believe. Something like that.
0: Yeah. And so what is the Sandman about? Well, it is the story or the life of... I he's not a god because he isn't a god and Gaiman has made it very clear he's not. More of like an entity. The personification of dreams. Named Dream and his world. He controls the dreams that all living creatures have, not just humans. And with him are his siblings, who are known as the Endless, the children of time and darkness. And those are destiny, death, dream, desire, despair, delirium, and on occasion, destruction, who is then later known as the prodigal they are an interesting bunch of characters because, like we said, this is a DC property, but they're not superheroes.
1: Yeah, they're personifications of these concepts. Sort of same idea as with American gods, where the gods are powered by devotion to whatever their ideals are, except the endless aren't really powered by devotion. They just kind of exist and are rulers of these domains. The the one of the key characteristics and one of the key arcs for it is Dream or Morpheus figuring out what his purpose is now that he's no longer trapped. He gets trapped early in the story and is trapped away for 60-80 um, years. They
0: describe it as almost a human lifetime.
1: Yeah, it's 80 years in the novel or in the graphic novels. And it's almost 100 years in the adaptation because they moved the adaptation, they moved it forward to 2022. But the the key is Dream coming back to his realm, figuring out how he can learn and adapt and become a better ruler of this realm. It's kind of the overarching theme, I would say, of The Sandman.
0: Yes, there are three sort of plot slash sections that you interact with with dream in these series. One is the main plot, his capture, his escape, the aftermath, and all of the consequences that happen as a result. Another is sort of a side side story where he works with William Shakespeare, and kind of similar to that is Dream going about his day-to-day life interacting with people in their dreams, maybe helping them, maybe giving them advice. And that is uh, that is my favorite of the three versions. I like the plot. The plot is fun. You see a lot of him interacting with other god with gods, with entities uh, or superhuman entities and occasionally superheroes though. I get this feeling that Gaiman had this story, like, built and ready to go, and then he was like, oh, oh, right, he's supposed to meet superheroes. I gotta write that. (laughs) He added them kind of at the last minute. Because you don't see, it's not, Dream is not designed to go and fight injustice. He's just there and to take care of things behind the scenes. Him and the Endless are... Theater technicians keeping the world going.
1: Yeah, they are not there to take an active role. Explicitly, they are not forbidden, but it is discouraged from taking an active role in the affairs of mortals. Superheroes explicitly must take active care in the affair of mortals. And if you don't have that, then that's Dr. Manhattan. And that is a different comic book that we do not have time to discuss.
0: That's Alan Moore, who... Uh, has made it clear he's not a big fan of, uh, well, he he likes superheroes, but he's also like, but I'm not a kid. I like superheroes as a kid, but I'm not a kid anymore. Yeah. So now let's look at the TV show. They've only done one season, and that's only uh, issues one and two, I believe, of the graphic novel. It covers Dream getting captured by an occult group, his existence in this cap in this prison and how it affects the world around him his escape his dealing with the aftermath and then sort of the the continued fallout of that while also carefully touching on sort of like as an interim dream as a person himself like midway through the show one of this one of the episodes is sort of a place to breathe and to see what Dream is like as a character.
1: Yeah, and I think the structure of the show, because I'm going to start digging into some of the nuts and bolts a little bit. The structure of the show is really interesting because it feels like it should be almost an anthology series. And I have a suspicion that the second ha- the second season, if it happens, will end up being more anthology focused. But the way the series is set up First episode is Dream is captured and then escapes. Episodes two, three, and four are Dream recollecting his tools. Episode five is kind of a bottle episode where Dream shows up at the end, recollects his final tools, and reascends to his throne. And then episode six is Dream kind of figuring out what he's gonna do with the rest of his life. But you'll kind of note from that, episode six is kind of, even though it's a middle ground, It almost feels like it's a new season, even though it's halfway through the first season. I think the pacing makes a ton of sense. I just think that sometimes it's a little bit of a, here's section one, here's section two, and the two of them are connected, but it's very loosely
0: connected. It's also probably my favorite episode of the season, because it covers, uh, it's called The Sound of Her Wings, and it's where you meet death and death for me in the books is a high point for me and they did her a justice in the show because whenever she appears I breathe a sigh of relief and go oh someone logical has joined the party she'll knock some sense into them because death kind of touches on this in her in the episode but dreams in the middle of a sort of an arc in de- in developing who he is and changing because being captured in that effect changed him drastically as he was than what he was beforehand and i think that it's good that they started then because if they started before then we probably wouldn't like him as much as we do honestly like some of the things like you learn in the books he was kind of a dick and at other times a real piece of shit because he is a prideful creature and he at times was a bit of a stick in the mud but it changes and he begins to um, learn a bit about himself and a bit about who he takes care of which he's out of necessity has separated himself from emotionally as much as you can because you can't be a superhero you can't look for justice because that's not his job.
1: I would say one of the core themes is everyone has responsibilities to the world around them and to society. You may not like those responsibilities, but you have them if you are a part of it. Countering that, there is a you can change those or get rid of them, but you can't necessarily do it in the ways that you want to. I would say, is one of the kind of key themes, at least in the second half of the season.
0: One other thing that I've seen that in the show that I think is just a vast improvement is they have taken characters who... In a comic book, they serve a purpose, they've done their purpose, they move on. But because this is a TV show and you have more time in a, in a weird sense to kind of go off and flesh these characters out, they've taken characters who you wouldn't really think of originally and they've given them more life and more you know story and more dimension. For now, my favorite example of this is Ethel Cripps, because how drastically different she is from the books to the show. Can we play this little thought experiment where you give me what kind of uh, character you would say Ethel Cripps is from the show?
1: Per the show, she is a high-class thief, has gotten to a position where she's no longer really a thief, but she is an art dealer who can get you things that you want, even if you maybe can't legally get them. But she'll figure that part out and make it work. She cares deeply for her son in as much as he is a reflection of her and wants to make sure that he is doing the right things. Because as the show goes on, it's revealed that he maybe killed a lot of people. And as the show goes on more, it turns out she was right, Uh, she, I would say is kind of craven and self-centered but also cares deeply about the people she cares about to the point where she is willing to sacrifice her life for her son.
0: But she is the person who makes the choices, takes the leaps, is the one who makes the deals, so to speak, and she does it for the most part on her own. That's the big part here. In the book, her job is to be the arm candy of the occultist who captures Dream and then run away with another man stealing Dream's tools and being the vessel to give birth to the eventual villain of the story. And that's it. She doesn't do anything else. She doesn't make any deals. She doesn't, you know, kind. you don't see her like weasel her not even weasel but like ingratiate herself to people you know you don't know what she does she's just there you can tell she cares about her son to an extent but it's also pretty clear that she has not seen him in years by the time the story kicks off and it's just a culmination of she's there she serves her purpose she dies And this i genuinely felt sorry for ethel in some occasions like it's sad to see her because she does care about her son and she realizes she did this and she messed it up and she's not sure how to fix it but she wants to fix it and it really is unfortunately her attempts to fix it don't help in the long run, but she doesn't know what else to do.
1: Yeah, I I think her character arc works well. She speaks against who ends up being the entity that ends up being sort of the second villain, which I think is a different thing that I think feels strange. I'm gonna jump back into structure briefly. The villain for the first half of the season is John, but he's ends up being dealt with and taken care of and doesn't show up again after the fifth episode. And then there's the overarching villain, the Corinthian, which I actually think works really well. It just feels like, it almost feels like there's like a cul-de-sac that John sort of gets shunted off into. And the Corinthian's like, oh, I guess I'm just not a part of this part. And I don't know if that's because I'm missing something, which is very possible, but it feels like the Corinthian should have been more present in that sort of episodes three to five to me.
0: Well, the Corinthian wasn't really present in the books either, and I think it goes to this idea of manipulation, this theme of manipulation, because remember, for the endless, time is different than for humans. Humans die surprisingly quickly, endless, so they can watch a plan take shape, and they, and for them, thousands of years have gone by and they don't notice, unless they're captured and stuck in a glass egg, in which case then it feels like eternity. Let's go to John. John in the show is inevitably manipulated by the nightmare known as the Corinthian who is trying to become part of humanity and not have to go back to becoming a nightmare created by Dream. So John is being manipulated by the Corinthian, who is also in turn going to end up using a, uh, becoming an unwitting pawn in another plan created by Dream's sibling, Desire, who is also manipulating stuff behind the scenes. It's all about extra layers of manipulation. And the further you go up, the longer the the plans take to form. Desire's plan started when they realized that Dream had been captured and was unable to perform their duties. So they planted a... Seed, I guess is the best way to put it. And to the point where by the time Dream came out and he had to take action or the world would be destroyed, he would have had to do what was considered taboo among the endless. And that would lead to really bad consequences. And by the, when Dream realizes this, he is pissed because Desire had nearly put him in a spot where there was no winning on his end. So, I do like that idea of manipulation and it's almost like almost like, you know, how we see with Tolkien how elves function where things don't go things move differently when you live for so long.
1: Yeah, long-term planning takes on a different meaning if you live for 400, 500, 600 years. And long-term planning takes a very, very different meaning if you live forever.
0: So in this series, another part of it that you see is because they are working behind the scenes, Dream's sort of personality is one where I know what's going on. I'm intelligent enough to know what I have to do. I don't have the time to explain it to you. He is kind of awkward, in a really annoying way to people who are mortals because he doesn't have the time to explain what he has to do for the millionth time because he's seen it over and over again so in that results in sort of a domino effect that he will have to deal with later and again it's kind of a no-win for him because it's something that he doesn't think about and I think death is a little bit more understanding of what you have to do and how humans function. And he's not 100% on that because he's never let himself empathize with humans. Or when he does, it's very rare and with only one person. Right. So I would like to also call out on this, the car- the guy or the actor who plays Dream in the series, because I think he encapsulates this personality perfectly. This otherworldly sort of coldness, this barrier between him and the rest of humanity that he's supposed to serve, but he has very little empathy towards. And that, so the guy who plays him is named Tom Sturridge, and he does such a good job. I can't stress that enough. I, I read an interview that he did because I was curious to see how he approached it. Because I've, you know, for some actors, they've never read the uh, source material if they're doing if they're doing an adaptation. They kind of go into it blind, or they read it last minute. And Tom Sturridge knew exactly what he was getting into when he took this role, and he knew what was being expected of him, which I love because he did such a good job. In the books, it's hard to tell what Dream is thinking, it's hard to show tone as you're talking. So he kind of comes off as stone-faced and there's not a lot of personality to it. Occasionally you see his facial features change if he's like if he's confused or if he's enjoying something, but it's it's a little hard to tell, but what Sturridge does is he puts tone, he adds tone to it. He has this little like death glare or side eye that he'll send to characters when they're annoying him that I love. I love it when Dreams fed up with something because he is such a shady bitch sometimes. And it does make me laugh at this sort of like stone phased over it character being just a tiny bit bemused when someone's like, I'm going to stop you. And he's like, oh, you will, will you? And
1: He's very aloof, but he's not above it.
0: Yes. He's definitely started to become in the mix after he gets out of his imprisonment. He definitely begins to join the party, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Across the board, I think... Everyone acting in it does a really good job. Yes. John is really good at being slightly off putting and just like just a little bit odd. All of the Endless have a good ethereal quality. Lucifer is very, very strong.
0: Played by Gwendolyn Christie and she plays them so well. Yeah. Lucifer was non binary or genderless when Neil Gaiman made them, but I think. Gwendolyn Christie took that and added this sort of foreboding that whenever you're near Lucifer, you feel like there's something just under the surface that if you say just the wrong thing, hint at it just enough, you're toast. And you have to be constantly on your toes. I love that. And they do such a good job with the sort of war of words uh, between Dream and Lucifer.
1: They do a really good job at having it be this war of words, but supported by visuals and doing enough sort of crossfading and having the acting come back in where everything feels fluid and you still get enough action and stuff going on that it's not just here are two characters talking at one another.
0: Which worked in the comic book, but I also like that they added that Dream at one point feels like he can't win and so he needs help from the Matthew the Raven who is voiced by Patton Oswald and does a very good job as well of course because in the show in the books he wins handily like he knows what he's gonna do at the end he knows how he's going to win against not Lucifer but another demon so that change helps a lot sort of up the stakes and create just that tiny bit more drama to the story because you realize that Dream feels fear because in the books, he's saying, I'm powerless, I'm not as strong as I used to be, but it's really hard to convey that so much. And in here, I actually felt that he's worried and he is not what he used to be and it bothers him. A change that they did that I was a little concerned about when i saw it because i cuz a lot of people have called it being woke which i don't i think is dumb but they cast Jenna Coleman as Constantine the ca- the character Constantine who is a DC comic character and he is a he is a guy he's a mess that's a good way of putting it he works in basically the occult and he knows just enough so that it seems like he knows what he's doing but in fact he is horribly over his head all the time and he's just running to try to keep up but when they get put made jenna coleman i was like okay so are they gonna sort of are they going to try to soften the edges make her more likable you know nope Nope. not at all nope she's a jerk she's an asshole she's got depth just like the real constantine or not the real constantine she's the real constantine just like the comic character constantine but she's also like a snarky jackass, and I was there for it the whole time. I love Jenna Coleman as Joanna Constantine. I really hope if they continue this, we see her again, because she is enjoyable to watch as uh, dream rolls his eyes and tries to keep and tries to follow her and keep her on a leash while she sort of runs around and does her own thing. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I think I said Death, the woman who plays Death. Fantastic. Her name is Kirby Howell-Baptiste. Excellent performance. That, again, is my favorite chapter of the series, and it's, and it did end up being my favorite portion of the TV show. She has a monologue where she describes her job, and it's coupled with these images or this, this uh, montage of her going about doing her job. And it is a powerful image and it's a powerful monologue that she does in what and how important death is for humans, in a sense, and how it has to be there.
1: Yeah, there is a good personification there and a realization that death doesn't want to do it, but recognizes that she has a job to do. She can give comfort in the dark time, get people on the path to something forward.
0: Yeah. It's a great character. I think, honestly, one of Neil Gaiman's best in terms of having that mentor figure. And that brings up another thing where I like that Dream is a hilariously flawed character in terms of pride and being kind of adult when it comes to interactions. Because again, he, in his head, he's figured it out. He's way ahead of everyone else, and they're just too slow to catch up. Or he doesn't need help. He refuses to ha- ask for help. He doesn't want to be in debt to anybody. And that also adds to the character arc that's not really there in the books. But I hope that with this arc that they have in the first season, we can sort of delve into Dream more as he's learned from this, and he can be a little bit better than uh, he is later in the books. I don't know, we'll see, but he is kind of amusing to watch. I guess some of the things that are in the story and are in the books that were not much of a thing in the 90s but now are more common is the idea of non-binary or transgender characters, or gay characters for that matter. You have characters present in the series, in the comic series, that are gay or uh, non-binary and they are, or transgender, and they are characters. They are not just there to be diverse. There's a reason for them because it also brings up the idea of gender in dreams because we kind of get this idea that dreams are what your soul is or your true self. And in some cases it, it is a bittersweet thing to see, for example, this didn't happen in the TV show yet, but a transgendered character is a woman in their dreams but won't be recognized as a woman in their real in real life. And it is sad and it is something that brings up how we view, you know, transgender people and how they deserve just as much respect for how they feel
1: short version trans women are women.
0: Yeah, but really this was but this was written in the 90s.
1: Yeah, and I would say the adaptation gets moved forward to roughly today, so 2022, 2021. And I think that a lot of the stories get updated in a way that makes sense. Yeah. If you are adapting something and moving it to a future time, that's going to change how the stories get told. The stories being told in the 90s are not the stories that get told even five years later. Yeah. I think they do a really good job with having characters be representative. And also they are here because they are this minority, but it is they are a character who is this minority, which yeah. is a really fine-grained difference, but really important.
0: A good example of this is just um, the character of Hal. Hal... By day is a landlord for a, a house in Florida. By night, he's Dolly, the drag queen. In the comics, again, the 90s, Hal was almost, was not as willing, like a little bit shy about their perso- his persona and was more willing to hide it. Let's put it that way. He was sort of scared to share his practice routine, with the main character, or his dance routine. And so it took her a little bit of coaxing to get him to practice while she was around. When two of his tenants mention that their mother of one of them is going to be visiting, they ask, can Dolly not be around? And he acquiesces. That idea where it's something that has to be hidden. While also being a part of himself in his dreams, because Dolly is someone he has in his dreams. They change that in the series by having it be less of Hal's not afraid to share that, not afraid to be the way that he is, and is not afraid to show off Dolly, his drag persona, but he feels like this is the best he can do. That all he will do is being performing at this drag club in Florida as a hobby or as a side thing, and not performing is not some that has sailed for him. And even though that this performing and being and, per, and being a performer is a version of him that he feels is very intrinsic to who he is, and you can see that in his dreams. They and they add that arc later where he is ready to move to Florida move from Florida and he does that in the books too but it is him being willing to not hide Dolly and in this case it's not hiding himself
1: yeah I think Hal and all of the characters at the bed and breakfast basically where they are are done well like there's still a comedy character but even those comedy characters have depth to them. There's Mm -hmm. an understanding of what's going on. Part of that is the main character, Rose Walker, ends up breaking through all their dreams. So you get to see sort of the facets of themselves that they try to hide because everyone, not everyone, but most people hide their dreams in some way. And once you can't hide that, then it changes who you are.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of like Cheeky, I guess a good word wordplay where it's like, you let's see if we can kill dreams, you know, that kind of yeah. that kind of phrasing or Um, this is the waking dream. And I guess the, and then this also, Rose Walker is also being connected back in the show to the Corinthian, who has been sort of upped in his importance to the series. And again, portrayed wonderfully by Boyd Holbrook as a sort of gregarious, charismatic character. And also just... Sinister when you see him initially, and that feeling of dread just gets worse the more you know him. It is a fun villain um, because he is a villain, and unfortunately, he has some good arguments for the fact that he wants to become part of humanity. Unfortunately, him becoming part of humanity is him killing people. So, we, and that is usually frowned upon.
1: Yeah, he ends up being, because he was created as a nightmare. He is created as the person who is this monster in the background, but looks normal to some extent. And I would say that's that's kind of his entire character arc, is him being monstrous, but going, no, this is who I was created to be. Yeah. And Dream recognizing, no, I made a mistake creating him in this way.
0: Yeah. And you can tell that it really does hurt him that he has to destroy the Corinthian. He says, I was so hopeful for you. I felt like you had such potential. It's, it's sad he in a weird such, way.
1: He had such potential to reflect the parts of humanity that humans won't allow themselves to reflect upon. I think is the, the wording, something along those lines yeah. where sometimes you need the external factor of this is something that you are not allowing yourself to see you need to be able to see that. Which is interesting.
0: And this whole conversation happens during one of the more bizarre setups of the show. I mean, just bouncing off the walls in, you know, weird situations, because again, when you literally have all of people's beliefs at your fingertips to mess with, sky's the limit of what you can do. And the Corinthian through Mechanations ends up creating this community of collectors so to speak and so he is having this conversation with dream at a serial killer convention it really is something that he created by being a monster pers- dream personified
1: and i would argue that he doesn't create it so much as he inspires it yeah. and then humans run with it because he explicitly has not showed up to it until yeah until the series starts Because he then gets invited, the collectors decide to bring him in. So he's like, all right, well, I'm already in the area. I would like to rewrite reality using Rose Walker to become the new queen of dreams. Because then if somebody else is running it, I get to stick around and I can continue doing what I've been doing for the past hundred years.
0: Yeah, unfortunately for him, and for everyone who thinks that Rose Walker can take over from dream, they're wrong.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's never made explicitly clear how exactly it would work. And Rose Walker also realizes that she's not willing to pay the price of, you know, wipe out the entire world that she knows. Yeah. Which, fair, fair, that's that's a big ask.
0: Yeah, she either dies, well, the the conflict that gets resolved in the end... for what she is, what she was born as, which is called the vortex, which basically it breaks through people's dreams and and sort of creates an emulsion of all of these dreams put together in this big vortex. It would destroy the collective unconscious and reality itself. And we're coming at it from Dream's perspective, where he sees what he has to go through and what you would have to go through in order to take that power and utilize it and be able to control it. And so then you see it from the point of view from pe- from the other direction, from people being like, well, you have this power and you can control it and you can become the new king. And we know that's not gonna work. Rose is like a 20-year-old human who is just experiencing for the first time. You can get a good suspicion that it's not gonna work that way. So it is one thing that I find darkly funny in people trying to go, you can do it, and then being horribly wrong.
1: Yeah. Overall, I just really like the series. I think they do a good job at balancing here are the arcs, here are sort of side stories. They released two additional, or one additional episode with two additional side stories that I really, really like. I think Calliope... I don't think it's my favorite episode, but it is a very, very strong episode in the whole Sandman storytelling. I, I think it's really strong. I think 24 7 is probably the strongest episode of the season. I think that it.
0: Can has... you explain which one that is?
1: So, 24 7 is a series of six characters trapped in a diner with John. John yes. reveals that no one is allowed to lie to one another. And because of the way all of the characters are structured, because this is a diner in a small town, they all know each other. And it means that once you can no longer lie to one another, you start revealing things that you didn't really intend to reveal. And that creates problems. But then it gets darker and continues spiraling out of control from there. I would say go watch it. It's very strong. Watch the entire series. I think the entire series is good that episode is a very good um, culmination of the first half of the season. I think it's very strong. It wraps everything up. I think it has a key thesis of dreams are really important to keeping hope alive. If you don't have dreams, you don't really have as much. It also has a lot of statements about how the lies that people tell one another aren't necessarily bad, but they are ways to slide past one another it's a way to to reduce friction between people
0: yes but calliope is also i think a really good display of how dream has changed since his imprisonment because calliope the muse yes turns out to be a person from dreams past um if you watch the show um you'll realize or read the comics you'll realize calliope used to be his wife and they parted on very poor terms. I don't agree with a lot of her feelings as I read her, you know, because you read more and you read her point of view. And the reason why she gets upset at him, again, there's this sort of disconnect with he understands what has to be done and he understands how, the wor- how things work and he just doesn't want to take the time to explain it. Their relationship is falling apart as a result of that. The point is, they did not end well, and so when she gets captured through a chain of events, she refuses to reach out to him until she can't take it anymore, and then he helps her, and they are able to sort of end things on a better note. There's a lot of history that you can see in their interactions, and it's a very well-put-together episode because it's also the idea of an author's inspiration and what one would be willing to do to get it.
1: Yeah, and taking advantage of those less fortunate than you. To put a not very fine point on it.
0: I think even more so the what exceptions will you allow yourself to get what you want? Because what happens to Calliope is she gets captured by an author who's struggling. So the person that gives her to him says, if you take her... She will give you what you want. And at first he was like, well, maybe I can convince her to like me. Maybe I can, you know, woo her. And all she wants to do is be free. And so he's like, well, she's not really human.
1: Yeah. It's done well, but woo, it's hard to watch.
0: Yeah. Also the fact that... The guy who plays the author is, I believe it's Arthur Darville, who played Rory in Matt Smith's uh, series uh, section of uh, Doctor Who, is very weird. <laughs> Does it well, because boy, you don't like him by the end of it.
1: <sighs> yeah. Yeah, he gets a comeuppance and you don't really feel particularly bad for him. No. Nope. After he's written on the walls in his own blood for an indeterminate amount of time. Yeah. Which, yeah, it feels about right.
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah. that was an adequate punishment.
1: If you know the magic card ad nauseum, it looks like that. Look up the magic card ad nauseum.
0: Or just leave it be as is. And with that, I think that's where we'll wrap it up. We, I think we've discussed just enough of it. There have been spoilers, but I really uh, encourage people to go check it out.
1: Yeah, it's a really good show, does a lot of things really well. I, As much as I'm like, oh, I think the structure is a little strange. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just that it's not how I would expect it to come together. And I like that it isn't completely predictable. I like that it does do some things that are a little strange. If they had split it the way that I'm thinking of, I don't think they would have been able to make a second season. I think that the way that I was thinking, where the first season is Dream getting his tools back, I don't think that would work to lead into another season. I don't think that would work.
0: To be fair, Neil Gaiman is strange.
1: Yes, and I think that it works really well. If you like Neil Gaiman and you're looking for a short story that's Neil Gaiman, but even stranger, look up a story called Changes. It feels like a movie script, or like a movie outline that got written and never got turned into a movie, where somebody invents a pill that'll let you change your gender at will. And then it just kind of spirals out from there. It's really, really good, or it's in Smoke and Mirrors, which is one of Neil Gaiman's short story collections. Sandman's really good, Good Omens, also really good. Good Omens is an extremely faithful adaptation, which is really, really cool.
0: That is also sort of a call out to the fact that Neil Gaiman is very protective of his work. I don't want to say when he cares about it, because he cares about all of them. But Good Omens, because it wasn't just him, it was Terry Pratchett who has passed away, he was so he was like a barrier between getting it adapted and he made sure that he had the final check of approval otherwise it wasn't getting made his fingerprints are all over the sandman series as well because when i reading the forward of the first sandman uh issue he says i'm not satisfied with it it's good i'm happy with the result i'm not satisfied and i think he The way they pitched it, he saw the opportunity to make it better, and he took it. And I'm glad that he had such... I feels like he had a very big say in it, and I'm glad that they did that. Because he has made it clear that he said no to many, many Sandman scripts.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's something that people in the know and people who have tried to adapt it have basically said, this is pushing right up on the edge of what we even think we could adapt. And I think it always can be done. You just have to figure out what your key thoughts are and sort of your key arguments. Yeah. And figure out when the right time to tell the story is. And I think The Sandman is a story that's told at the right time in the right way. I do hope there's a second season. I'm not sure where it would go, but I believe that they would have lots of ideas for the second season.
0: I wouldn't even know where to start because the next season starts with one of the characters and her imaginary world coming to life. I remember reading it where there is a face literally like nailed to a wall talking to to someone. And I'm like, this is weird. This is a weird story. Yeah. <laughs> but I love it. And you will too if you like weird. I love that Gaiman has totally proudly taken on the moniker as the guardian not even the guardian but like the inspiration for people who want to be weird
1: yeah he has a very clear vision he knows what he wants to do he has a very strong authorial voice you can tell when he's written something but he also knows when to sort of pull back on it and let somebody else have a turn and say Mm -hmm. something which is again is rare sandman's really good neil gaiman's really good we like him quite a bit.
0: Yep. Highly recommend on all levels. But I think that brings it to a close.
1: Yeah. yeah. So in that case.
0: You can reach out to us if you want to just say hi. You know what? Wdylpodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us also on Instagram at WDYLpod.
1: Until next time, this has been What Do You Like? with Hunter and Maria. Yep.